Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. And welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And I'm joined by a wonderful guest, Father Earl Fernandez. Father Earl, welcome to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Well, thanks for having me. Father Earl is a priest for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. Uh, He's also academic dean uh, for the seminary, and he is assistant professor of moral theology. And this is Mount St. Mary's Seminary of the West in Cincinnati uh, that you uh, do all these fine things at. So we thank you so much for dropping by the Catholic Cafe just for a few minutes to share some of your expertise with us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We are going to talk about a really tough topic what we want to talk about, really, Father Earl, is is this idea of conscience, right? The idea of the formation of conscience, and you know, the Catholic understanding of the conscience is a it's quite a unique understanding. Just give us a little nutshell. What what does the Catholic Church teach about conscience? What is the conscience? Well, a conscience is really a judgment of reason about the good to be done and the evil to be avoided in the here and now, in a particular, in a given situation in which we find ourselves. Um, so St. Paul tells us that uh, God's law has been planted on our human heart. And so we have the ability to hear the voice of God. It echoes in our ears, so to speak. Our conscience speaks to us, if you will, as if we're hearing the voice of God. And so we as Catholics believe that we have to always follow our conscience because our conscience has encountered the truth. Uh, Jesus has revealed himself as the truth. And so in obeying our conscience, it's as if we are obeying the voice of God. Now, that's wonderful and that's beautiful. And the people have just tuned out now. They've just stopped. They said, well, see, there it is. That's all I need to do. That's my inner being is talking to me. And that's really God. So whatever my inner self tells me, then then everything's hunky-dory and I can do Basically, whatever I want. And I know that's not what you're saying, Father Earl. Not at all, but a lot of times people say, well, I feel that this is right, um, or I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But now we say that conscience is a judgment of reason. So in any decision we make, we have to say, well, is this going to be a good decision? Is this going to be a good judgment or a bad judgment? I know you've had people who have come up to you, uh, and they have asked you this question or, or told you this revelation, we'll call it, uh, where they've said, you know, I had this difficult decision in life, whatever it might be about a church teaching or some great decision about their, their how to deal with something in their family, maybe it was whether or not they should use contraception, some, some great decision they had to make and, and that they prayed about it, right? They, they gave themselves over to God. They opened themselves up and let God speak. And then, then deep inside they had this uh, either affirmation or this feeling that this was the right thing to do. And so they acted upon that. Well, I'd say in any little or big decision, we should pray about things. I mean, and that's part of the process of coming to this judgment of reason. Prayer has to be a part of that. We call down the Holy Spirit, especially for the virtue of prudence, to help guide our decisions. But as I've said now a couple of times, conscience is a judgment of reason, There's a certain objectivity to this judgment. So we have to try to say, what do I need to do to make the best judgment possible? Because sometimes I make right judgments, judgments that are correct, and sometimes I make judgments that are wrong. 
One thing that conscience, though, we should say is not. It's not a feeling. If you think that conscience is a feeling, then you know, we're in a lot of trouble. Well, and that's, that, that is, because then everything becomes entirely subjective. Well, you're going to have a lot more violence in the world. People, I get angry, and I feel like, you know, punching in the face. And then the that's next, a feeling. And then the next minute, you don't feel angry, and you don't feel like punching anybody in the face. And it would seem then that we would descend into a certain type of moral relativism. What conscience helps us to do is to apprehend an objective moral order that God has set in place, and then to act in accordance as best we can with that order, and so, and which is also compatible with who we are as human beings, what's going to be best for us, what's going to help us to flourish and to truly be happy. So the important thing is to make good judgment after good judgment after good judgment, and then we build up a habit, and we build these habits these habits become internal dispositions, which we call virtues. And so we want to form good character by making good judgments and good, good decisions. So conscience isn't so much about a feeling as much as it is about uh, making an, uh, a judgment of reason. But that judgment has to be shaped and formed by a number of different sources. Which means we have to consult with people. So, for example, when I was growing up, I remember one day my dad turned up at our house in a 1982 Ford Fairmont. It was maroon. And he brought a brand new car. But he never consulted my mom. He knew my mom liked maroon as the color. But my dad not only didn't consult my mom about whether we needed a new car, whether it was a good car, he didn't consult consumer reports. He just sort of liked the car salesman and thought he was a good guy and bought the car. <laughs> Well, we wouldn't make a, a decision, really. We really shouldn't make a decision like that. As it turned out, that Ford Fairmont turned out to be a clunker. Decisions, judgments that we make that are uninformed. Now, you know, Father Ford will never be a sponsor of this show, just so you well, know you've done sorry. it. That's okay. That's all right, though. Well, that was that, just that particular <laughs> car anyway. But um, it was a bad judgment on my dad's part. He didn't do the research that he needed to do to make the best judgment possible in the given situation. So we need to inform our conscience. Now, how do we inform our conscience? One is by using our own reason. God has given us an intellect that we might know the good and a free will that we might choose the good. And so the first principle of practical reason is uh, the good is to be done uh, and the bad is to be avoided. Um, and so we do good and avoid evil. That makes sense to everybody, except that our first parents sinned, and original sin entered into the world. And so our reason is darkened. We don't always see things as God sees them. We don't always do the things that we want to do even. St. Paul says, I do the very thing that I do not wish to do. And the fact. more we do those things, actually the more clouded the, the truth or the reality of good becomes, right? right? And, and the further we walk away from God and the more we sin, the more darkened the mind becomes. But many of us are God-fearing Christians, and we're trying to do the best we can, and we do try to walk with God daily. But our reason is still darkened. We don't know everything that we like to think we do. Right. Okay? But even if we did have a lot of um, a great ability to reason and to see things more clearly, we also learn from our human experience. But our experience is not the only experience. Our experience is also limited. There are other people with many other experiences. And so we have experiences and we use our reason, but not in a vacuum, as if we're the only ones in the world, but actually in a community. And in particular as Catholics, in the community of the church. 
So we inform our conscience, firstly, by using our reason and our human experience, and in our experience in community as well, in the community of the faithful, not only the church as it exists here in this particular period of time, but in a 2,000-year tradition. But then we also learn in a particular way through revelation, the word of God written and handed down. That is, the word of God is living and effective. It pierces the heart. The word of God is actually not a thing, but really is the person of Jesus Christ. So when we preach the word of God, we're proclaiming the person of Jesus. And that's why a lot of times we see the word word written, we'll see it capitalized. Right. And that's really an indication that we're not talking about just uh, just mere uh, typewritten letters on a page. Right. And that's why when we say the word of God written and handed down, in the Catholic faith, we call that scripture and tradition. It's the one word of God written and handed down. So, for example, even before the Bible was written, the apostles were out there preaching and the word was alive. And they handed on uh, to others that faith which they had received from the Holy Spirit and from, the, uh, from Jesus himself, from his teaching. So we have scripture and tradition. These two um, also inform our conscience. Uh, so we have to consult the Bible. For example, there are certain moral teachings found in the Bible. We see the Ten Commandments, for example. That's God's word to us for how we might live and really be happy. The Beatitudes in the New Testament are also God's word for us and a way of living and a way of loving through which we might truly be happy with our neighbor and with God forever. And so we as Catholics believe that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit um, and therefore that they are without uh, error. They're inspired. But the Catholic Church is, is clear on the fact that we have to obey our conscience, but we have to have a properly formed conscience to obey. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to... That's why when you get into this... Uh, this you don't want to make a, an, an erroneous decision, right? You don't want to make a mistake. Right. So the more that you uh, surround yourself with the, the truth of the teachings of the church, the more, more you avail yourself of that... Now, does that mean, though, that you, you need to have a library of all the great works in your home, and then every time you make a decision, you need to refer to this? How does that work well, exactly? I, I think one of the things Cardinal Newman is famous for saying, um, conscience has rights uh, because it has duties. So we have a duty to inform our conscience. Now, not everyone's going to be able to read every theological book. But right. There are some things that we can consult. I've mentioned already the scriptures themselves. And sometimes the scriptures require a great deal of interpretation, but sometimes their meaning is very plain and very clear, as our, as our forefathers and mothers in the faith have always understood them. I think the key here is that you do due diligence. I mean, that you right. really, if you are genuinely trying to make a decision, you need to actually well, seek. And that's the thing is lots of times we make bad judgments due to ignorance. And sometimes our ignorance is invincible and sometimes it's what we call vincible ignorance. We make bad judgments, erroneous judgments. We speak of an erroneous conscience. And sometimes, and in the case of invincible ignorance, it's not our fault. We could never have known. Right. Um, on the other hand, Sometimes it is our fault. We didn't do due diligence in doing our research, so to speak, uh, about the particular issue. Now, where do we do the research? We could do the research in the Bible. 
but also in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We could do some research by looking at some papal encyclicals or recent writings, by calling a priest uh, who might know or an expert in the particular field, by consulting even experts in the secular fields. For example, if you, if you have to make a medical ethical decision, you're going to contact a doctor to find out. What's really going to happen. Right. Right. And so just, you just can have as much information as you can to make the decision that, that's going to be the best. So my silly question of, of, of having an entire theologian's library, I, I obviously was being facetious there, but the idea is that as long as you do due diligence and you are open to the promptings of the Spirit, if you do pray, God will find a way to speak to you, to, to help you meet the right person, to hear the right uh, homily, to find the right book, to read the right scripture that's going to open your eyes a little bit and help you make that good, informed, reasoned decision. Well, that's right. If there's an openness to the truth, and that's really what the church asks. Now, there's some teachings of the church, for example, and the teachings of Christ that require interiorly that we positively assent to them. For example, thou well, shalt. Hold on. Before we get there, no thou shalt okay. in the first half of the program. Okay. We were going to thou shalt. On the other side okay. of this break, before we do that, I want to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love for you to email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, thou shalt return for the next segment. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Sir Thomas More rose to the very heights of earthly power in the service of King Henry VIII before losing his head in service to the Lord and to his church. While perhaps best known to American moviegoers as the man for all seasons, St. Thomas More is venerated in the Roman Catholic Church as a universal patron of statesmen. Thomas More was born in London on a cold and damp English February morning in the late 15th century. He was the eldest son of Sir John Moore, a prominent and well-respected lawyer, and his wife Agnes. As a young man, Moore was given into the household of Cardinal Morton, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chancellor of England. The Cardinal took notice of Moore's many talents and arranged for him to continue his studies at Oxford. After two years, Moore returned to London to study law. He contemplated a religious vocation before deciding that his vocation was to the married state. And, once married, he took an active interest in the education of his children, insisting that their education be formed in the testimony of God and a good conscience. After his rise through various public offices, Moore was appointed Lord Chancellor of England in 1529. As Chancellor, Moore was Keeper of the King's Conscience, advising him on delicate matters of state. The intimacy of Sir Thomas and King Henry was tested and ultimately severed, however, by Henry's frustration that his queen, Catherine of Aragon, failed to present him with a son. In 1530, Sir Thomas refused to join in asking the Pope to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine. Two years later, Moore retired from public life, hoping that he would thus be able to avoid an open breach with Henry on the question of succession and sovereignty. This was not to be, however. When he refused to subscribe to the Oath of Supremacy, declaring King Henry supreme head of the church in England, Moore was imprisoned, tried, and convicted of treason. He was executed on July 6, 1535, at the Tower of London. In his ascent to the scaffold, Moore is reported to have said, 
I die the king's good servant, but God's first. St. Thomas More, the man who introduced the word integrity to the English language, died a martyr to his conscience, but is celebrated now as a saint of the Catholic Church. He is the patron saint of lawyers, and his feast day is celebrated by the Universal Church on June 22nd. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth, and I'm sitting here with Father Earl Fernandez. Uh, Father Earl is a priest for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and thank you so much, Father Earl, for helping us here understand a little bit more about the Catholic teaching of conscience and formation of conscience. Now, I rudely interrupted you uh, several minutes ago, and I, you were just getting it into this whole thou shalt and things that we need to positively assent to because they're, they're teachings of the church that we're sort of obliged to understand, to wrap our hands around. Well, for example, there's some things that have been revealed to us in Scripture, for example, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary or that Jesus rose from the dead. There's things that are very explicit in Scripture that all Christians believe, and we positively assent to those teachings. Then there are other things in Scripture that are pretty clear. Um, Thou shalt not kill. For example, though, sometimes you have to kill in self-defense, but most of the time most people would recognize murder, is, is wrong. Killing the innocent is wrong. Those types of things. Now, it, when we as Catholics talk about abortion, that's related to the commandment, for example, thou shalt not kill. Or when we speak of euthanasia, that's related to the commandment of uh, thou shalt not kill. And so sometimes we have to, the scriptures would never have thought of issues of abortion or euthanasia or don't mention any of the modern technological uh, advancements that we've had. So they don't deal with them directly. But still, it's a logical conclusion from what's been revealed to us uh, in the scriptures. But then sometimes there are many other issues, and those are pretty definitive. Then there are many other issues for example, that are hotly disputed. For example, uh, we have all these frozen embryos today. What do we do about those frozen embryos? Some people say, well, you leave them in a cryogenic state. Some people say, well, you should experiment upon them and use them for research. Uh, And the Catholic Church, of course, would rule that out. Other people would say, no, you should implant them and at least try to adopt them so they're not exposed to this uh, frozen state or so that they're not experimented upon. Um, And so... Moral theologians will debate uh, those types of issues, and those aren't necessarily binding on the conscience. And so there are some things that um, certainly require the positive assent to the will and other teachings which are more disputed that don't, but that when the church does teach, um, do require on the part of Catholics what they call in technical terms a religious submission of mind and will. We might call it uh, deference to the teaching authority of the church. Might there be a little confusion, though, Father Earl, about which things fall into which categories? And see, that's where we get into a lot of trouble, where you're talking about everyone would probably agree that, uh, especially as Catholics, many, most Catholics have no problem agreeing that thou shalt not kill in, right. in, in general um, and understand the differences uh, that our church points out in terms of self-defense, etc. But then many Catholics will start thinking things like, well, maybe... Uh, say the use of contraception is not one of those things that's sort of an absolute. Well, and I think that's where the magisterium of the church gives us guidance. Just as parents 
give their children guidance Holy on Mother issues. Church, that's right. Mama's speaking. Listen. That's right. Except we know that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church in matters of faith and morals. And so in that regard, in matters of faith and morals, we know that the church is not mistaken. Now, I would say there are basically three levels of church teaching. There are those truths which are taught as divinely revealed. For example, these are what we might call dogmas, infallible dogmas. Sometimes it's because they're contained directly in the scriptures. Sometimes it's because the Catholic Church has affirmed them as being divinely revealed. Then there are those truths which are definitively proposed on matters closely connected with revealed truth. Um, So there there are logical consequences. For example, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's there in the scriptures. And the church has consistently practiced and held, for example, and taught that certain acts like prostitution or like fornication are wrong. Now, somebody might not get that simply from thou shalt not commit adultery. Right. But it's clear that if you're having sexual intercourse outside the covenant of marriage, that's not in accordance with God's law. On this particular level, this is really just one step away from where you actually have to do a little bit of thinking. Right. Right? Or there's a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say gray area, because they're true. Right. These are absolutely true. Right. These require, on the part of Catholics, again, the same assent of the will. But now there are other teachings, the ordinary teaching on faith and morals, like the example I gave about the frozen embryos. This is the day-to-day, sometimes, teaching on immediate matters. And sometimes the church hasn't made any definitive pronouncement on these matters. So um, in the ordinary, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in number 892 explains it this way. To this ordinary, that is the day-to-day teaching, the faithful are to adhere to it with religious assent, which though distinct from the assent of faith, is nonetheless an extension of it. So theologians still debate some of these issues, um, but they and the faithful cannot simply disregard willy-nilly sort of church teaching and claim conscience. Right. So in other words, and and what, what I guess our listeners need to hear is it's not an option. You can't just pick and choose or just say that the church's voice is just one amongst others or I'm just going to do what I want to do. I just remember reading at one point in time that uh, our previous Holy Father, John Paul II, had said that when you have a properly formed conscience, it will rarely, if ever, disagree with church teaching. I mean, it just won't. How could it? Because it's the the voice of God speaking in your heart. Right. So that's what I meant by by an option. It doesn't mean... Uh, I, I meant no option in terms of like, well, if you have a properly formed conscience, you're, you're going to end up in this camp. Right. Because it is truth. That's where truth resides. The prudent person who has consulted with the scriptures, who has consulted with the tradition, uh, who has consulted um, with the Lord in prayer, would see that there's one option which is best. Now, the church realizes that people are fragile, and sometimes they make bad judgments, and sometimes they sin. That doesn't change the objective order of morality. We don't sort of lower the bar for some people because they're fragile and weak. Right? The bar remains what it is. There are objective standards. Truth is truth no matter how you approach it. Right. There are objective standards of morality. However, our challenge as pastoral ministers in the church is to get people and help people to develop the skills and the virtue, the discipline that it's necessary to be able to make it over that bar. Right. So sometimes they're going to fall. 
And for them, there is the sacrament of penance. There is a life of prayer. There is a life of fasting. There's the Eucharist to strengthen them. All of those things can help them get back on their feet and help them to get strong so they can be more and more disciplined in the spiritual life and build up the necessary virtues of prudence and temperance and I would say fortitude, real courage, right, to one day be able to live that teaching faithfully. Many of the church's teachings are challenging, even for the informed conscience. But just because they're challenging doesn't mean that they're impossible. And so I think that's one of the things that the Catholic Church can propose to the world today is, and to, to men and women is, all is not lost for you. Just because you sometimes sin doesn't mean that the story is over. God's grace is there for you. There is hope. Um, and there's a community of faith that's here to, re- uh, to help support you. Um, and what we ask for is simply an openness, an openness uh, to the truth, a posture of real humility to receive this teaching, but also a posture of humility in saying, God is creator and I'm creature. God is father and I'm his child. Uh, and so I want to show love toward my father I want to be humble before him, and I want to say yes. And, of course, we become better at things only when we are open and willing to do that. And so this humility you talk about is really important. for Because I know a lot of people are listening saying, well, I still think that's wrong or whatever. I don't. There's sort of a closed uh, mentality in terms of uh, and being open to the, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, to God, and to that true formation of conscience. You can't have a formed properly formed conscience if you don't allow it right. to be properly formed. And it's not wrong to question, to ask, you know, why? Or I don't agree for this reason. Um, and here are my objections. And then to hear how the other side responds to those objections. I think we have to be open and because that's part of the process of discovering the truth. Um, but we have to be open to listening to those uh, different voices in order to arrive at the truth. What the church provides us with in matters of faith and morals is an assurance, a certainty uh, in the judgment. The gold standard. That's right. And, uh, and we know that if we are faithful to our conscience and if we have followed uh, God's will as we hear it, um, then that will lead us uh, to the Lord himself. That's wonderful and very beautiful. And thank you so much, uh, Father Earl Fernandez, for sharing with us uh, this, the beautiful church's teaching on this formation of conscience. Thank you very much. All right, well, let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, you desire that we should all come to know you, to love you, and to live with you forever in heaven. With the gift of your grace, help us to form our consciences to the teachings of Christ and his church so that we may truly know your will and live in your love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stein, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table. Thank you.